Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Hoke and this is the Yale University Press Podcast. The advancing of reproductive technology is a fraught subject. Advocates for processes like genetic engineering will argue that through new technological discoveries, we may be able to wipe out certain genetic conditions. Those who argue against this worry that scientists are playing God. Lost in all of this, as my guest today points out, are the children themselves. What are their rights? What say do they have on all of this? Joining me today is Tom Ekman, a science teacher and writer, and he's written a book, uh, co-written a book with Marianne Mason called Babies of Technology, Assisted Reproduction and the Rights of the Child. Tom, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Michael. So before we jump into the rights debate, which, you know, is at the core of all this, uh, let's start out with where we are now as far as technology goes. What's, what's currently possible with regards to genetic engineering, reproductive technology, and what, what do you see as maybe being possible in the near future that isn't possible at this moment? You know, this target keeps shifting. Um, there was a recent story in NPR two days ago about a new artificial womb. And in order to stay abreast of what's going on in the, the world of human genetic engineering, you have to be basically reading the news every week because it's shifting so quickly. Um, for our purposes, and in our book, the, the primary forms of genetic engineering on humans that is currently taking place is not proposed or provisional. Um, there are a few. One is sex selection, where would-be parents choose whether to have a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. Another um, form of genetic engineering is scanning your IVF embryos before inserting into the uterus and deciding that one might have too high a likelihood of having a certain genetic illness mm -hmm. and discarding that embryo. Um, another example is what are known as savior siblings. So a couple who has one existing diseased child who perhaps needs an organ, um, I think perhaps like a kidney or bone marrow, will intentionally have a second child with uh, the right DNA, matching DNA to be a donor. So, and these are all things, this is all stuff that's happening right now. And is this, how, how common is this um, you know, maybe some of these are probably more common than others, but how, how common is this sort of, uh, you know, sex selection or, um, or screening for genetic, um, genetic uh, conditions before choosing an embryo? I think it would be more common if it was less expensive. Uh -huh. But, uh, and then another constraint is just geographical and political, which is most of these procedures are not allowed in Western Europe, or Japan or Australia. Um, the US is the most per permissive uh, nation in terms of allowing these kind of procedures. And you have these fertility tourists coming from all over the world to come to places like California where they can perform these procedures that are otherwise banned in other countries. Um, I know it is a big business. I know sex selection is a huge business. Mm -hmm. Uh, in California, I imagine Savior Siblings, for example, is a much lesser market. Mm -hmm. I don't have the, act, the actual numbers. Um, I do know that in countries like China and India, there has there's a long-standing preference in favor of having boys, and um, 
actually, it's interesting in the United States right now, the preferences for having girls and the statistic I've heard is that there are three times as many Google searches for how to have a girl than how to have a boy right now. Huh. And so, I mean, this, this idea of savior siblings, obviously that that's going to be a, a controversial topic. And I think, you know, right now, the proponents of, of some genetic engineering would say that it's a good thing, wiping out ge- certain genetic conditions, Down syndrome, for example. These, these, are, these are beneficial. But, uh, Tom, you've recently actually written an article in Fortune um, saying that that's really only one side of the story. Um, what are what are some of the what are some of the the cons uh, that may be less obvious to those who are sort of casually watching this? Well, you mentioned Down syndrome, which has been an issue for some time um, in the United States because it is a condition that can be diagnosed through prenatally, mm-hmm. and um, I believe nine out of 10 mothers in the United States would abort when they were told they had a uh, Down syndrome child. Mm -hmm. Now that whole procedure plays out at a, at an IVF stage. So there's no need to actually abort. It's um, your word we use is you would discard an an embryo that uh, before it's implanted into the uterus. So, um, it's a less invasive situation, mm-hmm. and um, and in and, and that way, it makes it an easier decision. But what I am seeing happen, and that I'm not the only person to notice this, is in general, the decisions are actually getting harder. And the reason is we're just getting so sophisticated in mapping the human genome and really fine-tuning specific um, sequences in our DNA that correspond to certain traits that we're increasingly able to select, if you will, for not just disease, but we could be selecting for things like intelligence or eye color or height or humor, creativity, mm-hmm. or maybe um, something as wonderful as compassion or empathy. And as we get more sophisticated as we're able to make those decisions, then it becomes tough because we're, we're, we're the ones deciding if, if a life is worth living. And specifically, it's the rich, the 1% that's able to make that decision because these kind of services are not going to see widespread uh, penetration anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings up an interesting idea as well. I mean, obviously, um, you are very concerned about the rights of these children who are who, who are uh, sort of products of this this genetic um, engineering or uh, in vitro fertilization, other things like that. But you know, I've recently heard an, another interesting side of this, and that is that parents, when they're when they have the ability to choose the traits of their children, as you're saying, um, it not only impacts the child, but it also impacts the future of our species in a way because we're sort of, you know, manipulating evolution. So I guess is is anybody sort of looking into the, you know, what what sort of right to consent uh, somebody might have in a way of speaking for the entire species? Yes, that's very astute and very true that the rights of the child are ultimately the rights of all humans in our species. And there are some international consortia that 
are in discussion about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the most powerful tool out there right now is called CRISPR-Cas9. It was introduced a few years ago by a UC Berkeley scientist, geneticist. That is the first tool that will allow us to go in and cut and paste the DNA in a living mammal and have it replicated in their offspring. So we were always able to make some changes to the individual, but now we're actually able to make changes to the whole human genome. That's mm -hmm. like our species, mm -hmm. which opens up the floodgates in a lot of ways to a whole new area of medicine and then ultimately enhancement because most enhancement begins as medicine, begins as a preventative thing and turns into an elective thing. Um, like cosmetic surgery or even Viagra, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they're the same scientists who introduced CRISPR-Cas9, right around the time she introduced that um, powerful, powerful, they called a molecular scissors, she put an article out in um, Science and Nature magazine urging scientists to use restraint because she realized that this tool, which had, was kind of, fell into everyone's lap. It happened very quickly. This, it, it shifted the entire field of genetics overnight. And um, the temptation to use this tool in just novel ways, ways we haven't really thought out is, is there now. And I think many people's concern is we don't even know what, what might happen. We don't even know what, what's gonna happen next. And so there's a general feeling of, of concern and, and apprehension of, uh, stepping too quickly into the unknown. And an example is right after CRISPR-Cas9 was released, there was a group of scientists in China who went right ahead and, and uh, experimented on, I think, 87 human embryos. Hmm. And they had some, some results that, that weren't very good in terms of uh, mutations, and they discarded the embryos long before they would have come to human stage. Mm -hmm. But it's an example of how it just didn't take long for anyone to start experimenting with this really, really powerful new medical technology. And how, how accessible is that technology? <clears throat> Pretty inaccessible. Uh -huh. I think you have to be, uh, you have to be in a genetic engineering context, a lab to be able to use it. It's definitely won't be available to the public well, I, I want to say it won't be available to the public in the next five years, but based on <laughs> our research, I have no way of even saying that. Uh -huh. I do know that there are biotech startups all around the, the world now that are that just launched right away because they're going to capitalize on this new technology and create variants on CRISPR-Cas9 because it's a pretty powerful tool. It will allow scientists to go in and, and effectively eradicate most genetic disease, which is... Um, massive, massive step forward for, for medicine. So again, the, you know, the heart of this whole discussion really is the, the rights of children. Um, and so I think in, in the book you estimate, or it's estimated that, uh, in the U S the number of children born through artificial insemination is thought to be in the millions. And, one of the factors uh, that you guys talk about is sort of this uh, donor anonymity. And so what are, what are some of the factors to consider here as far as the rights of the, the children involved when in some cases they don't know who 
they don't know the genetic history of of their own DNA, I guess, in a way. Donor anonymity is the oldest issue presented by assisted reproductive technology. And just as a note, in Europe, donor anonymity has been banned for well over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the US, it persists. And what we found most interesting um, is something called the donor sibling registry, where children who know that they're a child of um, a sperm donor and sometimes egg donor um, can go online. If that donor is anonymous, they can go online and using the, uh, the facility where the donation was made and like their donor number, like donor 3297, mm-hmm. um, they can actually go online and register themselves and find, possibly find their, their parent, but also find half siblings. Hmm. And it's been phenomenal. They have like tens of thousands of uh, children on this, some of them, many of them adults now on this uh, website we're finding all these half siblings and they find not just one or two, but they find a dozen or two dozen. And then I've heard anecdotally, a lot of them are having like family reunions every year and it's, it's powerful stuff. Hmm. Um, we think it's really important to know who your family is. The UN convention on the rights of the child specifically states that a child should have a right to know his or her origins and 174 countries signed that a long time ago. The U S still refuses to sign it. Um, you know, there's obviously like medical reasons, for example, if you're, there is screening for sperm donors, you should state that, but just any kind of medical history is always relevant, your genetic medical history. And if you don't know who your sperm donor is, you have, don't have that information. Um, there's also a sense of who am I related to, who's out there, like my half siblings. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a concern about incest and they have certain guidelines in certain cities of how many sperm donor recipients there can be so as to avoid the possibility of a half brother and a half sister hitting it off and and deciding to have a family together. Right, right. And so, you know, does one of the first things you get asked when you go to the doctor uh, is, you know, sort of what what is your family medical history? And as you're saying here, it, it may be difficult for children um, who came from a sperm donor or who came from, you know, a parent that they don't necessarily know, it, it, it may be difficult to answer that question. Do have the advances in uh, genetic testing helped to alleviate any of these problems? Or, you know, what are the options for children who don't have a complete uh, medical history to give when they go to the doctor? Oh, wow. That really starts to sound very science fiction to me uh, <laughs> um, that we would actually be able to just stop worrying about who our uh, biological progenitors were and just look at our own DNA to determine exactly what our uh, medical and health situation is. But it's a logical question. Um, to my knowledge, the genetic screening is just not... Um, it's not, it's not reasonable in terms of, uh, it's not economical and it's not being used to test for every single little condition that, you know, we've all had to fill out those forms in the United States healthcare system. Um, I don't think that we test for each of those conditions. Mm-hmm. And I think each test would be expensive and some of them might not be possible. I don't know that the markers are that clean. Mm-hmm. Um, so to my knowledge, 
the fact that a lot of these children don't know who their their parents are um, is not being alleviated. It's still a major, it's really a major health consideration um, that to not know who your, um, <clears throat> your mother or your father are. In fact, there are children being born in California right now who don't know, they're, they're raised by a, they're gestated by a surrogate and then they're, they're given birth to and then adopted by a man and there's no woman on the birth certificate. So they have no mm-hmm. biological mother, they have no surrogate mother. So it's like a whole part of themselves is kind of a mystery. And to my knowledge, genetic screening is not going to account for that in the near future. Why do you think, I mean, you mentioned that the U.S. has chosen not to sign uh, this U.N. agreement. Um, Why do you think the concept of children's rights has received so little attention here in the U.S. at least? When we started the project, my co-author, she's an an expert in children's rights. So I said, tell me all about children's rights. And it didn't take very long because it's actually a very small body of law, Mm -hmm. surprisingly small body of law. Um, We are behind the curve, significantly behind the curve when compared to Europe, where there's been an acceptance that children have unique rights, for example, against, uh, you know, working at really young ages, being exploited in various ways. Um, the Europe, Europe basically wholeheartedly adopted the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. We haven't wanted to touch it for a couple reasons. One of them is, and it's a little sad, but we incarcerate more children than any other country on the planet. And the, I would guess you would call it the sort of prosecution slash criminal justice machine doesn't want to be caught in a situation where they're not able to punish child offenders. Uh And the provisions of the Convention on the Right right to the Child would limit our ability to do that. I've also heard intimation, and I cannot substantiate this, that there may be, that may be clouded now by the issue of quote-unquote child terrorists. Mm -hmm. So our issues for not ratifying this convention really come back to a different issue, which is crime. They don't have anything to do with issues of like, for example, donor anonymity. But the effect is the same, which is the US is categorically avoiding a major, major subject, an important area of law for its children. Uh, And it's also, frankly, because of the reproductive space has just been a very sensitive issue in the United States for decades. Right. So it's, it's an area that most politicians don't want to touch. One of the other, uh, the other things you talk about in the book is, and this sort of gets at what, what you're saying too, in a way, um, the, the family dynamic is changing, um, in the U S and globally as well. Um, how do you think the the um, this idea of genetic enhancement, or or even just in uh, you know in vitro in vitro fertilization or surrogacy, uh, what effect is that having? Do you think on uh, the 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 family dynamic here in the U.S.? Well, broadly, I think I think it's possibly having a very very positive effect mm-hmm. <clears throat> because there's a lot of discussion about what parenting's about and what family's about and. More than anything, this whole field is full of intentional parents, people who, you know, usually with infertility issues have had to spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not they want to be a parent, why they want to be a parent, how they're going to be a parent. And then they often have to invest 
a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of frustration toward being a parent, which um, I think makes them to be at least as good parents as someone who accidentally has a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but possibly, let's just say better, better equipped or more prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do have a very, very different landscape of families in, in the United States. I am um, at 44 years old. I can remember watching Leave it to Beaver reruns on TV when I was a kid. And this kind of myth of the American nuclear family still exists somewhere in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. And when we did our research, I was really surprised to find that that Leave it to Beaver family is like 20% or less of the U.S. family <laughs> landscape, where you have a single breadwinner father and a stay-at-home mom mm-hmm. and a couple of kids. Families come in a lot of different uh, arrangements now, and um, you have a lot of um, single mothers, and we have a whole new category of single mothers by choice. These are women who've decided to go it alone um, electively, and they use assisted reproduction to get there. We also have, um, I find rather fascinating, co-parents, which are people, would-be parents who have a contract with another would-be parent to raise a child, but it's not a union forged in love or romance. Hmm. It is completely about wanting to have a kid without the love affair, if you will. And I think that's a really neat idea because it puts all the focus on being a parent Mm -hmm. and and having a very rigid understanding of like whose family you're going to visit on the holidays and how the college fund's going to work and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Because love, as we know, is is can be a rocky basis for any (laughs) and then finally you obviously have same-sex partners and they both same-sex male partners and same-sex female partners obviously benefit from assisted reproduction um, for obvious reasons but even more sort of amazing to me is there's a possibility that two women or two men will be able to have a child in the future because Scientists are showing the possibility of deriving sperm or ova from human stem cells. And how, I mean, is that, that doesn't sound like it might be very far off. Is that something that's in the, in the, on the horizon? Definitely on the horizon. And the article that showed some promise came out in 2015 Mm -hmm. when they took uh, stem cells from two men, or at least one man, and they were able to derive an ovum or ova. So I don't think that's terribly far off. So uh, before we before we uh, end here today, for anybody who might be listening or for people who, who read your book, um, who want to maybe get involved somehow, especially when it comes to maybe the, the uh, legislative side of things, what, what advice would you have uh, for them? Well, we're really fortunate because there's an excellent example out there. In the United Kingdom, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority was formed in, I want to say 2004, when anonymity was banned. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any event, it's, a, it's an independent regulatory agency that has three basic functions. And one is just to keep track of what's going on in assisted reproduction, which is very helpful, for example, in knowing how many procedures are carried out, 
who the who the donors are. Uh, it also promulgates and enforces safety and medical guidelines, which is very important. Mm -hmm. And then I think perhaps most importantly, it, it's it's really keeping track of where the industry is going and what the new technologies are doing. And for example, there was a new uh, procedure called cytoplasmic transfer, which leads to this famous three-parent baby, which is another story. But they uh, floated that whole proposal to parliament. It was discussed very publicly. And so they're, they're, it's a very good agency for keeping these issues in, in, in the forefront of public awareness. So the first place I would suggest anyone go to educate themselves a little is to read about the UK's Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, because it's been very successful. And I think it's the type of regulatory agency we will need to adopt We'll have to have a model very similar to that in the United States as mm -hmm. soon as possible. So I have to ask, uh, since you mentioned it, what is the what is the three parent baby? It's gotten a lot of attention, and I I have to admit it is pretty pretty uh, pretty unusual stuff. <laughs> uh, essentially, through a very promising procedure known as mitochondrial transfer or cytoplasmic transfer. Mm -hmm. Um, you can replace the cytoplasm in one woman's egg with the cytoplasm of another woman's egg uh, if the first woman's egg has some kind of diseased, uh, diseased condition. Mm -hmm. So you can actually replace the cytoplasm and mitochondria with donor material that is, does not have the disease. And huh. it's, great. it's great for removing um, certain genetic conditions, a lot of promise in that area. However, it has also... It led to children being born with um, some identifiable DNA from a third, second mother or a third parent. Interesting. So the egg is the egg is still the mother's. The, well, one of the mothers, I guess, and then the cytoplasm's another mother's, and then obviously the sperm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so odd that it kind of like it, it almost bends your head a little bit because we're so used to thinking one of the most. It's like the sun comes up tomorrow and kids. Each have a mother and a father. It's one of those most basic assumptions that's now at the window. <laughs> right. That a child could have three parents. And then, you know, the downstream effects get multiplied too, because each of their offspring will suddenly have um, a higher number than usual of genetic forebears. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely brave new world stuff. Mm -hmm. But actually, the UK is going forward with that line of scientific inquiry and experimentation because the benefits are, are really significant and can be a very powerful tool for getting rid of specific genetic diseases. And so the UK is moving forward using that procedure. I think they're the only country in the, on the planet that's currently using that procedure. It was banned back 15 years ago because in the 90s, a bunch of three-parent children were born by accident. Mm. And the scientific community said, whoa, stop, and put the brakes on and basically put a ban on the procedure. All right. Well, the book is Babies of Technology, Assisted Reproduction and the Rights of the Child. Tom, thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much, Michael. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.